Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode, called Damages, we bring you three short stories about the impact of crime on people's lives. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that today's episode does contain some strong language and confronting issues. Our first story, Croc, comes from Melbourne author Piers Newton-John. In addition to being a writer, he is a guitarist, web developer, former psychotherapist and father. His stories have appeared extensively in Australian literary journals and anthologies, and in 2008 he won the Alan Marshall Award. Croc is inspired by true events. It is read by me and was recorded live at Knox Street Bar, Chippendale. Kelly met Croc at his 40th birthday. The place was full of banditos. Megadeth blasting, the stink of burning meat, and a bathtub full of ice and VB on the lawn. She sat on the couch in the front room and someone passed her a line tapped out on the back of a magazine. Leaning back in the sofa, the bitter trickle of speed in the back of her throat, she noticed the crocodile paraphernalia. Later, she sat with the blokes in the yard drinking beer and smoking points of meth out of a broken light bulb. She felt good, clear and strong, despite the boozy spin in her head. Running away had been right, she saw. She was grown up. She was wild. She went inside to get a glass of water and someone blocked her with an arm across the hallway. Croc. She'd seen him turning steaks on the barbecue. He'd seen her too, eyes locking a moment before Kelly looked away. He had noticed her. He rested his cigarette hand on the wall next to her. So, tell me. Tell you what? Her skin prickled at his closeness, his unbuttoned shirt, his animal smell of sweat mixed with booze and cigarettes. He tucked back a stray strand of her hair, grinning in a way that made her shiver. Whatever you want, he said. He was far too old for her. Her face burned in the heat of his gaze, his hungry, sexual smile. Normally she'd have been too shy, but the meth was at work. She was holed up in the corner and the only release from the pressure was to talk. Croc laughed. So we have a wild one, do we? And you look so sweet. Fuck off, I hate that word. He raised an eyebrow, amused. Ah, so you're a bad girl. I think I have something you might like to see. Really? But only if you don't tell anyone. You can keep a secret, can't you, Kelly? Cross my heart. He took her out into the backyard and unlocked a large shed. In the centre of the room was a huge aquarium tank. The crocodile inside it must have grown in the time he'd had it because it could no longer fit at full stretch. Its nose and tail touched the glass at either end. It lay on a bed of sand, half-submerged in filthy green water. Its eyes were tiny ponds of evil. Oh, my God. She looked at Croc. You can't be serious. She walked around it, awestruck. A single tooth curled from its pale lip. The alien sentience in its unblinking eyes prickled on her skin. Are you allowed to keep that? 
He gave a barking laugh. How'd you get it then? Contacts? Money? He shrugged, took a drag. They can get you pretty much anything. The crocodile moved and Kelly jumped. She ducked for the door, escaped back onto the lawn, the cold air of the amphetamine-sharpened night. Stay, he told her later, as long as you like. Kelly had nowhere to go but back to the youth refuge, so she decided she would stay, just for a bit. She was still at Crocs when the yard paled with dawn and the stench of puke and spilled beer began to thicken in a rising heat. She was still there when, in the afternoon, the meth at last gave way with a tidal wave of exhaustion swamped her. Did Croc give her a pill to help kill the last agitation of her limbs? She couldn't remember. She woke at last from a sleep so deep she had no sense of its duration. The dull light might have been evening or early morning. She was lying on Croc's bed. The room was empty, the house quiet. Her skull thumped. She got up and went into the living room. It was tidy as if the party had never been. She went to the backyard. Croc was laid back in a chair, drinking a beer. She saw from the sky it was evening. She lives, he grinned, tipped back the stubby. She hesitated. Did you... Did we, um... What? She couldn't read his expression. She bit her lip, uncertain of herself now. Have a sausage, he said. They're good. Croc was not tender. At the start, he could be charming, magnetic, attentive, but never tender. Early on, there had been something she had wanted from him, apart from the drugs. She longed for him to look at her again with the rapt attention of that first night. In the beginning, he had showered her with gifts, but his smile had gone cold so fast. Then his cruelty emerged. One day, Croc, coming home, smiling, I have something for you. Another present. Only a week before he'd done the same thing and given her perfume, which she'd worn to please him. You deserve it. Come here. She came. Now put out your hand and close your eyes. She stood there smiling and he ground his cigarette out in her open palm. She jerked back from the pain and then she was on the floor, the side of her face ringing with the force of his slap. He knelt in front of her. You went out today, didn't you? He was so calm. He put the tip of his boot on her fingertips, leaned. What did I say about going out? Only when and where, I say. Stop it, she sobbed. Why are you doing this? Because you're a little fucking liar. The last two words through gritted teeth, his foot grinding on her fingers. She could never predict him. There was nothing to read in his face to let you know what he'd do next. But then there were certain rituals that followed the same pattern when she knew exactly what was coming, like his TV days when he'd spend a whole day watching Foxtel sports and drinking beer. He'd stare for hours at cars going around a track. Kelly sat in the dark of the bedroom, picking at scabs on her knees or chewing her fingernails down till they bled. Then he'd call her in and make her sit watching too. Sport, always sport. The light flickering blue on Croc's lifeless face as he watched, the cigarette smog thickening, the ashtray overflowing, the stack of empties growing beside his chair. 
but this game was about his sport. Around six or seven, he'd switch to porn, his eyes following every scene with the same expressionless stare, but with a new level of tension in the air. He was indifferent to the porn, but it turned him on in a different way to play with her, knowing how she hated it. She'd learned to sit still, as still as she could on the speed he'd given her earlier. He drew it out, hours sometimes, until the time came when he made her come over and do what it was he wanted her to do. She remembered the night she ran away, the moment it became clear that she could do it and they couldn't stop her. But now here she was, on her knees in the bathtub, scrubbing Ajax into the gleaming enamel for the fourth time today because she had to do something with the restlessness. The house stank of bleach and everything was scoured and spotless and she was so lonely she almost wished Croc would come home just for someone to talk to. He'd said to her, no TV. How would he know if she did watch? But she was scared he had some way, a hidden camera somewhere or something. She'd found cameras before, scrub, scrub. Or he'd come home and catch her before she had a chance to flick the remote. When Croc was gone, he left bags of meat for her to feed the crocodile. Early on, she dreamed of poisoning it with rat sack. But now she knew she could never do it. More than anything, she felt pity for the beast. She sat there in the dimness of the shed and it watched her, waiting for her to throw in the next bit of meat. When she did, sometimes it fell in a place where the crocodile couldn't reach it and it would go berserk, twisting and thrashing about before finally falling still again. Croc was gone and the house clicked and whirred. The refrigerator turned itself on and off. A tree scraped the wall. A cockroach scuttled in the kitchen, chafing the lino. She lay in bed, the curtains closed. The house whispered words just under the threshold of sense. She covered her ears with the pillow. In the night, she woke with a sudden, cold certainty. She got up, found a screwdriver and turned the phone upside down on the floor of the hall. She had to be very careful to put it all back together right so he wouldn't notice it. It was hard. Her hands shaking so much she kept spilling the tiny screws. Yes, there it was. She knew it. He'd put something inside the receiver. She was going to be sick. She made it to the toilet, threw up the pizza she'd had for dinner. Somewhere she had some speed. In the kitchen. She was shaking and the contents of the drawer fell on the floor. Shit. She found a gram of head in a plastic sleeve, but no speed. The other room. There it was. Thank God. Thank Jesus. She wanted to smoke it, but that would take too long. She needed it right away, sniffed it straight out of the foil. Morning, and Kelly was in the kitchen cutting gashes in a chicken and stuffing them with Valium. She took it out to the shed and threw it to the crocodile. An hour later, she was disappointed to find it still awake. But when she came closer, she saw that it was fast asleep with its eyes open. She waved a lump of meat over it and it didn't stir. She took a crowbar and heaved it into the glass. It caved, fell in a thousand shards. Sand and water poured out onto the floor, spilling with them an overpowering stink of ammonia and rotted meat. She walked around the tank, smashing every pane. The crocodile slid onto the concrete. Free of the tank, she saw how truly huge it was. She bent to touch it. 
She stroked its snout. She knelt low and lifted its lip, saw the feared teeth. She left the shed door open. Kelly stood in the kitchen, a cloudless day, lawnmower song rising and falling. She looked out into the backyard and saw the crocodile, huge and still on the lawn, a monstrous ornament. Next door, the neighbour was pruning his peach tree. Snip, snip. She went outside onto the sunny front lawn. She sat down and put her head in her hands, her face between her knees. Her face was itching so badly. It was the worms she'd caught from croc. She was going to need something to get them out. That was an extract from the short story Croc by Piers Newton-John. You can read the story in full in Fault Lines, Piers' collection of short stories published by Spineless Wonders. Our next story is a microfiction called Burden by Susan McCreary from her collection Loopholes. Susan is an award-winning poet and author who works as a professional proofreader and lives in Thoreau. Burden is also read by me. He tells me he raped a woman once. He tells me over coffee on a Sunday morning, as we share the morning papers, wait for our eggs benedict. We'd been married eight years. He looks relieved. But you know what? Now that woman's burden is also mine. And it eats at me from that day on, eats at me so much it pisses him off. So one day he brings his fist near my face and hisses, You're mine. And I can see, those were the eyes. That was the voice he would have used. That was Burden by Susan McCreary. Our final story today, A Lovely Outing, comes from Blue Mountains author Mark O'Flynn. Mark is a much-published poet and fiction writer whose most recent novel was shortlisted in the 2017 Miles Franklin Award. Mark has also worked as a prison educator for many years, and this story, performed by Felix Johnson, is also based on real events. A stainless steel urn bubbles away by itself on a laminex bench. It sounds at the same time dangerous and comforting. Kevin, my son-in-law, scowls at his wristwatch. He doesn't think I should be here at all, but it's lovely to be out and about for the day. Such a gorgeous sunny morning. The sky as bright as a postcard. I never knew how much I'd miss sparrows. A nice cup of tea and my family about me. It's so long since we've all been out together. My daughter, Jane, in her tan suit, is already dabbing her eyes with a tissue. They told us this might happen. Kevin sits on the hard-backed chair with his thick arms folded like an Easter Island statue. They're here to lend moral support, whatever that is, and I'm glad they're here, like at Christmas. It's nice to sit with a cup of tea in a little square of sunshine. A fly butts itself against the window. Blue walls. A Monsteria Deliciosa in a clay pot winds its way up a little trellis towards the light. I do wish Jane would stop her snivelling. I wonder about the benefits of snivelling as a form of moral support. 
Mr. Draper is going through his papers. Are you all right, Mrs. Lappin? He asks, catching my eye. He's the sort of man who seems to be wearing glasses even when he isn't. Of course, I say with a smile. Why shouldn't I be all right? We all enjoy the air's warmth, or the breeze through the window for our various reasons. After a few minutes, the door opens and two big men come in. One of them must be seven feet tall at least. He has to duck beneath the portal. They're both wearing uniforms with shiny buttons and epaulettes. Then follows a smartly dressed young man whom I do not recognise. But then, how could I be expected to? I barely recognise my own grandchildren. Kevin and Jane both stiffen in their seats. Kevin picks fluff from his trousers. Someone's wearing aftershave. The young man smiles at me rather sheepishly. Surely this can't be him. Troy. No, this can't be. He looks like such a nice boy. I take time to polish my specs. Hello, Mrs. Lappin, the young man says. A moment passes. It's clear that he has practised his manners. Mr. Draper ushers him to a chair. He first folds his jumper over the back of it, then sits. His clothes are nice and clean, and those slacks are coming back into fashion. The two men in uniform sit outside our small circle. One of them opens a magazine. The tall one goes to the urn by the window. He actually blocks out some daylight. You can see the dust swirl in his wake. Well, Troy, says Mr. Draper, I'm sure you know why we're here. Yes. And you're a willing participant in this process? Yes, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Is this Troy? I ask, suddenly realising that it's me they're talking about. Don't upset yourself, Mum, Jane says, laying a hand on my arm. I look at it, but don't recognise what should be so obvious to me. I'm not upset. Yes, it's me, Mrs Lappin, says the young man. Is it? I ask Mr Draper. Mr Draper nods encouragingly. The urn boils. No, no, this nice young-looking man can't be the one who attacked me, no. I'm afraid that he is, says Mr Draper. He doesn't always look this clean, pipes up the giant from the coffee urn. He's so big I wonder how we could possibly be of the same species. Kevin's foot is tapping rapidly, one leg folded across the other knee. The giant carries a styrofoam cup of tea as if it is a flake of apple across to his friend. Mr Draper continues. I understand that this is difficult. We're here to acknowledge what Troy has done to Mrs Lappin and offer amends to and make restoration for the events that took place two and a half years ago. We are also here for Mrs Lappin to state how significantly these events have affected her over time. Mrs Lappin, would you like to begin? Me? Now? I don't know what to think. Well, I can't believe this is the same young man. Look how nicely he's dressed. And he's even gone to the effort to iron his slacks. He's scum, says Kevin. I turn to Kevin. It's more effort than you've gone to. Mum, says Jane, don't be fooled by appearances. Scum and appearances fill my eyes. There's a sunny pause. Clink of cups. Lovely. I feel that before too long I'd like to visit the lavatory. Mrs Lappin, a voice speaks. It's Troy. I know I've done the wrong thing. 
I'm really not that sort of person. I know I've caused you pain and I'm sorry. Excuse me, Troy, Mr. Draper interrupts. It doesn't help anyone if you're going to gloss over everything. You need to itemize each act for which you are responsible and for which you are ultimately sorry. The function of this conference is to facilitate that process, otherwise we're all wasting our time. I'd like him to understand, Jane squeaks, always the first to get in her penny's worth. I'd like him to know not just what pain he put my mother through, but also everyone else here, me in particular. I was the one who had to take extended leave from my job. I took her to the hospital every day. I want him to appreciate that I was the one who had to watch the pain she went through in rehab. I was, for goodness sake, I say, it was only my shoulder. Troy stares at the bitten nails at the ends of his fingers. The fly still skates across the glass of the window. Beyond, I can see some sails on the water. I understand the emotional pain and the inconvenience I put you through, Mrs. Mitchell, says Troy. And I'm sorry for that too. How does he know my name? Jane says. Kevin and Mr. Draper shrug. They look at me as if I have the answer. Well, yes, I... uh, Yes, I wrote to him, Jane, and yes, I told him about us. You wrote to him, says Kevin. You told him about us, says Jane. Does he know our address, asks Kevin suddenly. I told him about our family, about Christmas. Why, for God's sake, Kevin snorts. He asked, and no one else writes to me, it was polite. All the cups are empty. Mr. Draper intervenes at this point. At last, someone backing me up. That's correct, Mr. Mitchell. Written contact must be established between the victim and the perpetrator before proper process of restorative justice can be instigated. All your mother-in-law's letters were fully monitored. You read my mail? I squawk. Kevin looks much happier. Troy, did you know that? Troy nods. Such a sweet face. Hard to imagine. Do you have anything else you'd like to ask of Troy, Mrs. Lappin? One thing I've always wanted to know, Troy, is why you betrayed my trust that day. Mrs. Lappin, he says at last, I'm sorry that I picked you out of the crowd to be my victim. I picked you because I could see, I could see that you were vulnerable. I'm sorry I let you take my arm and that I betrayed your trust. You helped me across the road. You were a gentleman. I never meant to hurt you. I'm sorry that I snatched your bag and you fell to the ground. At this point, Jane interrupts again. He's glossing over the part where he dragged her along the street until the strap broke. He doesn't know about the bruises and abrasions. I do. I know all about that. The blood on her stockings. I can't get that out of my head. I held on tight, didn't I, for an old girl? (laughs) Yeah, you did, says Troy, his face Christmas white. I'm sorry that you dislocated your shoulder. Yeah, that hurt, but not as much as you betraying my trust. It's almost as if I don't remember the things he's speaking of, as if they happened long ago to someone else. Well, it was long ago, but that shouldn't make any difference. It's true, my trust has been betrayed and broken. I didn't mean for any of that to happen, says Troy. If I could take everything back, I would, but I can't. I have to live with who I am. I'm also sorry that I was addicted to drugs and my addiction made me do those things to you. It was drugs that made you say those things, I ask. Yes. That'd be right, says Kevin. Nothing but a despicable junkie. I can't believe how rude he's being. 
Everyone takes a deep breath. I'm sorry for the shame and hurt I caused you. I know you had to stop playing bowls when you were very active. Tears suddenly leak from Troy's eyes. I'm sorry for the pain I caused my own parents. They don't want to have anything more to do with me. No, really, a granny basher, says Kevin sardonically. I'll be quiet, Kevin. I'm sorry for just about everything, Troy says. Boo-hoo-hoo, sobs Jane in her shrill Starling's voice. It pulls me up short. One of the guards snickers. I'm shocked to realise what I've never seen before, that my daughter is a nasty person. Kevin asks a pointed question. Is it true that you were raped in jail? Yes, that's true. And I bet that's another thing you're sorry about. Troy lets his tears fall. He cannot hide them anywhere. I cannot believe the rudeness of my family. One of the officers sitting outside the circle yawns loudly, crushing his styrofoam cup. Well, I'm not sorry, I say. Kevin and Jane both splutter. Some tea spills. Oh, I'm sorry that my shoulder was hurt, and I'm sorry that I had to give up playing bowls, but I'm not sorry that this nice young gentleman offered to help me. I didn't know how I was going to get across that busy road. Jesus Christ, Kevin groans. And I'm not sorry that meeting you, Troy, has meant that I've been able to come on this lovely trip to town. I would never have done that otherwise. It's been so long since I spent such time with my family. Everyone's eyes follow a different fly, not knowing where to rest. When I eventually come back from the lavatory, Mr. Draper makes Troy promise that he will stay off the drugs and that he will always have clean urine, which is something I do not wish to understand. He agrees to my request that we write regularly and he let me know the state of his drug-free progress. We say our goodbyes and Troy kisses my hand. I believe I almost blush. I see the officers put handcuffs on his wrists as he leads them out. He looks so small alongside them. He gives me a wink. I want so much to read the next letter Troy will send. I'm happy when the letter arrives. I see again that he's not a very good speller. He tells me how happy he was to finally meet me at the conference, how much it meant to him to see me and to say the things he had to say before he, you know, ran out of steam, and that afterwards, driving back to prison where he will serve the remainder of his sentence, the guards had stopped at some traffic lights where, winding down the window an inch, he could smell the sea. That was Marco Flynn's story, A Lovely Outing, from his collection White Light, which is published by Spineless Wonders. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed Damages. Do let us know what you think of our show. You can submit your feedback via the 2RPH website. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher, Bronwyn Meehan, and our sound engineer was Oliver Agbisset. I'm Ella Watson-Russell your little fictions on air host. Bye for now.